There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Tom Egan. Tom is the president and CEO of Foundation for Senior Living, or FSL. FSL's mission is to improve the quality of life for adults and their caregivers. We had a great conversation that focused on our country's massively changing demographics with roughly 10,000 people every day turning 65 and how those numbers will impact the cost of health care and the need for affordable housing moving forward. You can find out more about Tom and FSL at fsl.org or give them a call at 602-285-1800. You can also email the show for a list of 10 critical signs that a loved one may need your help. Thank you as always for listening. Remember to tell a friend. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action today is Tom Egan, the president and CEO of the Foundation for Senior Living. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We have an exciting and very, very important topic to cover today. But first and foremost, Centauri, how did you celebrate International Women's Day today? Wow. Okay. So, I didn't, um, wow. but there was a, I was in the car, and on the radio, this girl dedicated, oh my god, I can't remember what song, but it was so anti-women, and the DJ was like, well, I, I guess. So I feel like uh, even though there are a lot of women who are taking it very seriously, a lot of women are not, which I find very interesting for the cause. There it is. There it is. So you just throw them under the bus at me. It's well, fine. Like, I'm totally <laughs> That's how this works. That that was sort of a softball, but it, it honestly seems like there's a lot of these days that have been popping up, and maybe they've always been around, but I found online a website called nationaldaycalendar.com, and they said there's 1,500 national how, days now. So wow. how does that work? Well, you'll have to go to the website to really find out. But. Huh. Anyway, uh, Tom, I appreciate you being here today. We are as... A, a city as a country faced with, a, I think, a really, really, really big problem of folks getting older, and it doesn't seem like we're talking much about it. So tell us about your organization sure. and how you got involved with it and what, what you guys are working on. Sure. So I'm the president and CEO of the Foundation for Senior Living, or FSL. Uh, the reason I've uh, uh, we've kind of started going with the acronym is you know, we're not a traditional foundation. We don't only serve seniors. And, you know, seniors, elderly are both words that get a little tricky. There are people who don't like being labeled. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at even like AARP, AARP, <coughs> you know, much larger organization than we are, just going with their market research, they've started to go with 50 plus. Because you either are or you're not. We're not labeling you. We're just identifying your age. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we started doing that as well. And then, you know, in the senior living industry, uh, when people say that term, people usually think of like a campus that people go and live, either rent or buy in type model, mm-hmm. a nursing home type facility. And we stopped doing that service 15 years ago. So uh, just using the acronym has been better for us because we do so many things. In essence, we do community-based healthcare and we develop affordable housing around the state of Arizona. Okay. So when you look at it, um, something like 87% of people when you talk to them, want to age in place, they want to stay in their own home. Mm-hmm. So let's make sure we can provide a continuum of services to help them age in place, stay in their own home versus go into a facility that most people don't want to go into. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've had that experience in your own families or you've seen that, but um, most people have a very negative uh, mm-hmm. connotation of what a senior living uh, facility looks like. It doesn't have to be. There's a continuum of, of many, many different types of, of uh, place, placements for people. But considering where people want to stay in their own home, why don't we help them achieve their own goal, maintains their dignity, maintains mm-hmm. their independence. I think it's better for everyone. Yeah, mm-hmm. for as long as absolutely possible. Like, yeah. I, I like to be at home now, and I'm 38. I don't <laughs> want to have to move to some strange place when I'm you know, older. So the numbers behind 
Americans aging are, are, are pretty staggering. I was doing a little bit of research today, and I've known for many years that 10,000 Americans a day become, senior, um, become 65 years old. So every day, 10,000 Americans are turning 65. And I'll just, just so we can frame this, Medicare, in, in 2014, Medicare cost $618 billion. By 2050, there will be 83 million people 65 and older, which is two times as many as there were uh, just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Mm. So we're looking at doubling $618 billion, which is like $1.2 <laughs> So it's this massive, massive number. And then you factor in Social Security as well, because we're not... I don't think that we're, you, you, if you just look at, well, Medicare costs this much. Well, that's enormous. Social Security costs $800 billion a year right now. So, again, we're going to double that number, too. So that's $1.6 um, Social Security and Medicare right now account for a third of the, of the national budget, a third of it. And so just in a very, very short amount of time, granted 2050 is a couple years away, it's going to, number's going to double. Right. So a huge ball rolling and if these problems are not addressed and these issues are not addressed i don't know i don't know how we're going to take care of it <laughs> well and i that's one thing i was going to say have you heard the term silver tsunami not my term it's a term that's in, in the industry but that's what they've talked about is you have this this huge tidal wave of seniors you mentioned the ten thousand every day doubling the number well what do we do what do we do with with all those folks and it's going to be a, a as they age it's not generally 65 you know, a lot of people, they're tiring at 65. They're healthy. They're still having an active lifestyle. But as they get older, 75, 85, you know, it was, for us, in our experience, it used to be uncommon to have the 100-year-old client. Mm -hmm. Lots of 100-year-old clients. I think our youngest client was three, and our oldest was 100 last year. And she's not the only one. So it, people are living longer, which puts, puts that extra, you know, strain in the system. Mm -hmm. So what do people need? Uh, you know, we start to look at it. So they're they're going to need healthcare, and they're going to need housing. I think those are the two things that we do that, that I kind of wanted to talk about today. Of how do we address this? There are some things out there, but it's it's limited. It, it is limited. The system is not set up to handle this increasing number. You know, you've got funding has in essence been flat, and as you mentioned, the demand is drastically increasing. Mm -hmm. It sets up a bad situation in the somewhere near yes, future. So are you seeing more and more organizations, ventures that are focusing on the aging piece? You'd have to, right? The, you know, it's really fascinating. When I was just, I, I just read a report that Giving USA did recently right. on, on philanthropy. And when you look at all the charities nationally, there's only 6% of charities that are tracked by the IRS that are in our quote, aging services organizations. Now, I'm sure there are charities that are providing those services. Those services but Primary. not targeted specific. Yeah. When you talk 6% of all charities in the country, that's a really tiny number. And um, both of you, you know, we've had conversations offline about, you know, when I came into Foundation for Senior Living two years ago, and, you know, I was doing international public health before this. Prior to that, I was, you know, working on human trafficking and domestic violence and child welfare, uh, resettling refugees, many, many different things I've done in my career. And, you know, I think in every one of those situations, when you start to talk about a huge societal challenge, there is no one entity, there's no one organization that's going to solve that on their own. You have yeah. to have collaborations. You have to partner with people. I think we have some good collaborations in place. We don't have enough. We need to do more of that. But we need to partner strategically with the right folks. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of people who start to look at the demographics and think, oh, there's an opportunity here. Yes and no. I mean, yes, there's an opportunity, but you really have to come from that, I, I think, from that servant leadership mindset. It's not how can I monetize right. an aging mm -hmm. population. Um, no one's going to do it for free, but you have to find ways to make it um, where it's more of a philanthropic mm -hmm. venture, not just a, a business venture. Maybe that's the nonprofit guy in me, but... Not just a cash grab taking care of a <laughs> grandma and grandpa. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So maybe, yeah, walk us through the, um, the piece about healthcare and, and housing. Well, I mean, that's really going to be an interesting thing. So when you start to look at, let's just take caregiving in general. So if you think of caregiving on its broadest standpoint, who's a caregiver? 
I think sometimes it, it's even helpful to define what that means. They can be your spouse, your significant other, other loved one, it could be a neighbor. Caregivers are anyone who's doing a variety of tasks that somebody can no longer do for themselves. Mm. So I think most often we think of, oh, I'm going to have to take care of my mom or dad in the future. But it could be your spouse. It could be a disabled adult child. Mm. There's a massive service cliff. when you, If you have a child with special needs, once they turn 18, there's a lot fewer services available for that uh, young adult. And you're, you're not just, you know, if you're a caregiver to, to a child with a disability, it's not just till... 18, right. they go off to college, they're maybe mm-hmm. still on the payroll until 25, they're with you to life, and they're probably going to outlive you. So oh. then the caregiver's mm. stress is, who's going to take care of my son or daughter when I'm not here? Um, there was a family we were working with recently, This uh, the mom had her father living with her, her husband had serious medical issues, and she has a disabled adult child. Wow. I don't know. I don't even know where to start with that situation. But but the, the woman's is saying she's doing all we can. We, we obviously provide some from uh, services for her. But I think most often what really throws people off is they get thrown into the role of being a caregiver without any notice. Or there's support. some yeah. Uh, there's some triggering event that oh now you're a caregiver, and and you, you don't know how to access the system. You don't know how to navigate. You. you you, you, you think there are uh, services available and then you realize, they're, oh, it's limited to this waiting list, so there's eligibility criteria. Um, so I think that's often a, a really challenging thing. If you just take Arizona, there's something like 850,000 families providing unpaid care in our state. That's just one state. 850,000. Providing $9 billion of unpaid care annually. Wow. So you, you mentioned numbers, and you mentioned Medicare, you mentioned Social Security, but there's a number there that, you know, it's being tracked, but what help is there for those families? You know, that, that's, it's, <laughs> we're talking about a huge, huge number. It's already happening. People are doing it, and they're doing it because it's family, and you have to. And there are, there's... Obviously, somebody gets thrown into being a caregiver, their life effectively could just totally stop. If they were working, they would have to stop working potentially, but are they able to do that? The physical and emotional toll that that takes on them is, it's, it's not possible to measure that. Right, right. Um, really, really, really an awful situation. Yeah. Nice that that family is able to do it, but the toll that it takes, um, I don't think that people really understand mm-hmm. that. Well, and I think, uh, there, I mean, there's so many issues related to it, but um, something like 30% of family caregivers are taking care of somebody over uh, age 65. So, so that's that number of, of taking care of mom or dad. But uh, 87% of Americans who are going to be providing that care is going uh, to be unpaid. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's really a, a huge area you're talking about. One of the things that we tried to do, because we, we've come to realize that most caregivers are, they're employed, they're working. And uh, one of the things we tried to do about this was, uh, when I started, was, okay, we need to go meet caregivers where they're at, because a lot of them do still work. So you're working, and then you're taking on that second shift of being a caregiver. So we need to get to people where they're at. We need to get into people's uh, places of employment, we get into their places of worship, and start doing um, educational workshops, brown bag series, mm. there. Give them a chance to talk to experts, find out you know, how do you pay for care, how do you access resources, how do you care for the caregiver, how do you take care of yourself? Uh, a lot of times I've, uh, you know when you go on an airplane and they're like, oh, you gotta put your oxygen mask on first before you right. do child or person traveling with, because mm. if you pass out, no one's gonna be able to help right. them. That's the first thing I think of when you talk about caregivers. You have to take care of yourself, and what happens is people do not. They're so focused on taking care of their loved one that uh, I don't know if we're measuring what impact mm-hmm. it has on on the caregiver. You know, just everything that's involved with that, trying to to help somebody get into the shower or to get into bed or to move from a chair to the toilet. It's not easy to move another human being, so it's really the physical toll, and again, the emotional and everything else. It's, it's very, very, yeah. very, 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 very challenging. 
Well, and you're, you're, if you're not uh, physically able to, to do something like that, you're, you could potentially hurt that per- hurt the person you're caring for, or you're going to hurt yourself. Now you're going to be in a much more difficult situation. Um, we get, I don't know, I'm going to say 300 phone calls a month that, in essence, start like this. Is there somebody I can talk to about my mom, my dad, whoever? And we can handle those and try to connect the person to the right um, uh, service or help them navigate or help them get connected the best we can. Um, unfortunately, there are in our state, there are huge wait lists for some of the, the Medicaid-funded services. So for the very poor, there's not a lot out there. There's a huge misnomer with Medicare, I think, that people think, oh, you turn 65, you get Medicare, Medicare covers everything. No, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Medi- Medicare is insurance. It covers an episode. It's something that happens. You know, you break a hip, you get sick, something mm-hmm. like that. Long-term care, very, very few people have. I, George, in your industry, you may know more about that than I do, but um, it, it's, a, it's a product that not a lot of people have insurance coverage for. So if you're very wealthy, there are things you can, you can pay to get help. The very, very poor, um, we have an Arizona long-term care system that's going to cover people, but there's a pretty big wait list. Mm-hmm. If you're working families in the middle, that's where you get into those people doing unpaid care because they don't qualify and they don't have the resources to, to pay for it. So then what? Um, I think there's, if people would actually have the conversation with the social workers, with the volunteers we have, you could find that, uh, you know, maybe you can't, you can't afford, you know, 24-hour care for your loved one. But even getting that break, getting, you know, 10 hours, 20 hours a week, Somebody to give you a break. Then you can respite. take it's respite. Absolutely, you're right, Zatar. That is the accurate term for it. And there are you can certainly buy a long-term care insurance policy, but these are policies that need to be bought when you're a younger person, and so certainly not when it's time to actually use long-term <laughs> right. care. Just like any other, I just got in a car and yeah. right, just like all different types of insurance. <laughs> so. But it's hard to think of. But you know when you start also thinking, wildly just, unpleasant to think about getting older. Yeah. You you may know, Centaur. Do you know what like if you put somebody in a a, a nursing home, like what's that going to cost? Do you have any sense? Uh, depending, four to ten thousand dollars a month. Yeah, that's a pretty good. Yeah, four probably be on the low end. Nicer up around twelve. You know, uh, home care. Uh, well, let's take that. So let's say you go in a home, could be as high as twelve thousand dollars a month. You need somebody through somebody's estate really quickly. Really and nice. they're out of home where they don't want to be. Home care, having services brought in the home, you could probably do for $25,000, $29,000 a year on average. A lot more cost effective. And help that person stay where they mm-hmm. want to be. The challenge we have there, the challenge in the system is uh, we don't have enough caregivers. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, you're talking about you know lower paid jobs, $10, $12 an hour. You know, $13 an hour, maybe on the high end. Um, going into somebody's home, doing bathing, doing cleaning, doing, you know, personal care for someone. You know, I think we have to turn away. We turn away people who need help because I don't have enough staff, mm-hmm. uh, really, you know, quality staff to be able to deploy. Mm-hmm. That's one challenge in, in, on, on one spectrum of the healthcare uh, system. The other one is nursing. We do not have enough nurses in this country, and I just saw a thing where, you know, in typical Arizona fashion, we're in the bottom five or ten. Because, of course. Why would we be in the top for anything? (laughs) We have one of the worst nursing shortages in the country. Same thing. How do you get more people into those, uh, you know, professions that are helping professions? Nursing is a better paying job. You know, uh, healthcare work, you know, community healthcare workers are or entry-level type jobs. But so we need more people to do it. What happens to those folks that you have to turn away from services? What What do they do? Probably, those are probably the ones that go back and rely on family. Mm. You know, I mean, we're not the only one doing the services we provide. <clears throat> but as I talk to people in our industry, everyone has the same issue. Mm-hmm. They don't have enough resources. They don't have enough mm-hmm. resources to do it. You know, So that that's a big challenge. That's a big challenge. So... Um, it's certainly more cost effective, but I think as a as a as a community, as a co- uh, country, we're going to have to figure out how do we how do we pay for those services, how do we value those, 
Um, healthcare in general, you mentioned, what do we do with healthcare? Some of that work's already being done. We have to get healthcare, we have to get away from episodic, you know, I'm going to pay for this test, I'll pay for this procedure, and get to more of an outcome-based. The provider who can show improved outcomes in somebody's life, let's pay for that, not for how many of something you can do along the way. Some of that work's being talked about, particularly in the Medicare or Medicaid space, because they have to. Because they have to. So, so that's, the system's already shifting. There's some, some working groups out there, there's some states piloting some things to try to look at moving to more of uh, episodic care to uh, results-based. I think that would be an improvement, but, <laughs> you know. Are you, are you seeing any particular innovations in the industry, or is it the same old, same old? It's a little bit same old, same old. There's, you know, it's, we've even had a hard time getting uh, insurance companies to pay for, for um, you know, integrating technology some, some mm. uh, you know, virtual visits, things where you could say, again, pay me for the result, not how I got it. And, and it, it, that's hard. They, they want to do it, but they're used to an old model and it's hard to get away from it. So I think there are some interesting things. Let's say uh, my mom lives in Buffalo, New York. So she's, a, uh, she's far away. We're already living FSL's mission. She lives with my sister. But let's say she still lived on her own. There are pieces of technology out there that I think you can integrate with your, you know, your tablet, your iPad. So I could know, uh, did, did, hey, no one opened the refrigerator today. I can call, did she eat? Oh, she went out with her friends? Fine, we don't have an issue. No, she didn't eat all day. Okay, what happened? What's going on? There's yeah. sensors you can put in the bed. She didn't get out of bed all day. What's going on? I'm 3,000 miles away. I'm worried, you know. Wow. So I think there are some things that are being tested that are really interesting. Um, uh, I, I think you could do some of the same things with medication monitoring, um, you know, the, uh, reminder services where somebody, you know, a right. uh, friendly face just coming up on a repair thing, reminding somebody. It's like, oh, okay, because, you know, when you start getting into memory issues. So I think there are some technology things out there. I haven't seen anything that I love yet. Um, but but I think there's some things coming, and I think there's some opportunities there. But again, it's um, you know if you have a nurse go out and visit somebody once, but then you have a nurse's aide check in telephonically or through an application, uh, I think that has promise. But again, now you get into accessibility. Older, poor, right. do they have access to internet, right. phone? Right. There's this uh, really cool venture coming out of ASU, actually, where they are trying to connect college students with uh, uh, elderly folks who want to stay in their homes. So the idea would be kind of like an app for, hey, I don't want to pay rent, but I would live with an older person and mm -hmm. do the exact same thing. Check on them, call their parents, or call their kids if something's awry, just be there to do certain things for them that they couldn't do otherwise or otherwise able but need a little help and I think things like that are slowly bubbling up and as I see more things coming out of ASU and just some of the um, the organizations that we just work with in our latest fast pitch program aging seems to be like the hot button topic that people are focusing on so that's good it's least. good yeah. I mean we have like I said we have it we have to have new new people bringing new ideas mm -hmm. and there's going to be this you know continuum of, of things there, there's probably some technology solution we haven't thought of yet right. that's going to be really great I love hearing a program like that, but then I also get nervous about somebody taking advantage of somebody who are yeah, music. Yeah, the liability and everything behind that is insane. That's what they have to work out. And, and they have to figure that yeah. out. There are, uh, there are great people, and it could be a, a wonderful situation. But then you could also have, you know, you, you hear about, uh, you know, financial fraud abuse yeah. a lot where somebody, well, just make me your guardian, and I'll take care of all your bills for you. And, you know, send this to my checking account every month for service fee. That, you know, there's some sketchy things that could happen. <clears throat> things could probably go sideways in a deal like that. But yeah. So the the cost of healthcare is an enormous challenge that you're working on, and also what you just touched on was housing. So housing <sighs> is that available? And just to to be the numbers guy here, uh, in, in 2015, the average Social Security benefit was $1,300 a month, roughly speaking, and a lot of these folks that are now retiring have less than $100,000 in the bank or in retirement accounts. So I don't know if that's enough to pay the rent and to pay for food and everything else. Yeah, so let, let's talk about another depressing topic. 
the, the, just the need for affordable housing. We, we were part of a national survey recently, and I was really surprised to see affordable housing come out as the number one issue around the United States from, it, from, the, from the charity perspective. It's not just senior housing. You've got a, a huge number of people with disabilities. Mm. You've got families. I mean, we need affordable housing in general. But let's just take senior housing. So, you know, we talked about that number of people turning 65. You got 10,000 every day for the next, was it, 15 years. Um, uh, in addition to the numbers you talked about, there's a, a third of Americans who have nothing saved for retirement. So if you're getting to retirement and you have, what'd you say, $1,300 a month, yep. there's only so much affordable housing that's out there. When we had, uh, back when sequestration came into place, if you're familiar with that, with the they sort of put caps on uh, how much government uh, spending there would be. And what it did was, in essence, it was under the Obama administration, try to hold down defense spending and uh, domestic. So you've sort of had this, this cap put on everything. So a lot of funding sources dried. Well, you had reductions as well. So a lot of funding sources dried up. There's not a lot of funding that's available to even develop new affordable housing. In the state of Arizona, the one... Uh, funding source that's even available nationally anymore. Um, we're going to do anywhere between 13, 15 projects a year around the state of Arizona. Now, in that, you've got to get family housing, you've got to get senior housing, homeless, veterans, everything. It's not enough, but it is the one thing that's out there. So if you... I'm sorry, when you say yeah. 13 to 15 projects, what does that mean? Low-income housing tax credits is the only funding source that's left. So the state's going to have a competitive bid process where uh, developers, for-profit and non-profit, are going to say, here's, here's what I could build you know, in whatever community. And the state sets the priorities for what they want. Okay. And, um, and you know, we're, we're obviously heavily involved in that. So um, you know, we, we have a new project we're applying for. We, in a couple of weeks, we're having a ribbon cutting on 60 units of affordable housing in Cottonwood, Arizona. We're uh, mid-April, we'll break ground on uh, 80 units of affordable housing in downtown Tucson, right on the streetcar. Um, so there's, you know, we're we're doing a rehabilitation in, in Kingman. So it's these types of projects, but you're only going to get, third, depending on funding, let's say 15 projects, whole state. For the year. For the year. Wow. So, and if, if a project's got 50 units, 100 units, um, you might see some bigger than that. But but let's say you're adding 1,000, 1,500 units. It's not enough. It's not enough. Close to it. No, it's nowhere near. So, we have, just to give you some sense, I'll just give you our perspective. We have 23 multifamily affordable housing projects around the state. Some are for families, some are for seniors, uh, some are veterans. What, what it depends on what the funding source was. Um, in, in 2013, we would measure a, a waiting list by a factor of 10. Oh, there's 10 people on the waiting list. There's 30 people on the waiting list. Now, we're measuring in factors of 100. There's 100, there's 200, there's 400. And we could have easily thousands, but we, we, we have to cap it at some point because there's only so many people you can stay in touch with. Uh, to, to see who, who's still needing or interested. So I mentioned that Cottonwood property, 60 units in Cottonwood, it's close to the hospital. Um, the day we were up there with the mayor turning over a ceremonial shovel of dirt and it, it made it into the, the little local newspaper, 400 people called trying to find out how to get in. Wow. When and when the when we started actually going through the applications and you know you have to because you have an, el uh, an eligibility criteria people have to make you you know we've had you know we've had donors we've had board members like these such beautiful properties I want to live there right and I'm like you don't want to live in one of our properties that means you economically qualify to live in one of our properties you've you've made some horrible uh, savings decisions somewhere yeah, along right. the way that that have led you know put you in a situation but I'm proud of the fact that we can provide dignified, affordable housing. Mm -hmm. It does not have to look institutional. We can build beautiful properties. So you get these you get these 400 uh, uh, families for 60 units. So at the end of the day, we're going to have 60 people who are really, really happy with us and, and grateful for the property they have, and they will stay there until they need to move to a higher level of care or pass away. 
because the rents are affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember what the rents are there off the top of my head, but with every property we have, we make sure all utilities are included, you know, things like that. So if it's 500, 550, so, you know, when you're living on a fixed income, you can control that. So it's, it's a huge advantage, but then you've got all those other families who are still looking. And then what? They're, they're looking for the next property that's going to, the next one's in two, so the next one I'm doing is Tucson. So, okay, well, if your support system was in northern Arizona, can you go to southern Arizona? It might be better than nothing or right. a lot of challenges to it. So, so we, you know, there were other funding sources pre-sequestration. They've all dried up. We don't know what will come back. But when you look at, and you know, I don't want to get into politics stuff, but when you look at the, the funding priorities, I don't see anything shaking loose in, in the next, you know, in the short term. I don't recall hearing about this during the debates or during the uh, <laughs> or during the six-year political uh, cycle that we just went through. Um, I did read about how in Chicago there's a two-year waiting list for affordable housing in New York City, four years in Philadelphia, it's closed because there's just there's hundreds, just, there's so many hundreds of thousands of people that that want yeah. it and need it. So and that's sort of how Arizona has been. I mean, recently even like Section Eight reopened up. That was the first time in I don't know a decade. Really? So we were closed, and then it opened up, you know, more recently. Briefly. Briefly, for, and then for, some short closed. Minutes, yeah. Like, thanks a lot. Yeah, from from twelve fifteen to one, we're taking applications. And so, that. what do you? Again, my question is: So you make thirteen hundred dollars a year on Social Security, you can't get into affordable housing. What do you do? Like, what are you doing? Are you I spending mean, all your money on rent, or people helping you out? What does that look like? Again, I think I think a lot of it winds up being the uh, falling back to family. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think when I talk to, you know, some of the some of the folks who are involved more in the homeless issue, you're seeing more seniors, you're mm-hmm. seeing more people into other systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I read a story about a a, a, a guy who a senior who just robbed a bank for a dollar because he wanted to go to jail because mm-hmm. that was a better option than what he had. Wow. Healthcare place to stay. That's not an option. That's not a cost effective <laughs> option. It, this is not a criminal. This was somebody who made a, I think he literally tried to rob him for a dollar. Mm. Just so he could wow. jail for, for, for better robbery. Not, not Three hots and a cot, right? Yes, right. Too old for the army. So, you know, there's, I don't know what the solution is. But I think when you look at what I would consider a FSL, an aging services organization, um, when I got there, we didn't have a long history of philanthropy. Uh, didn't have a lot of donors. We were mostly government contracts. And I thought we were unique. And as I was reading this Giving USA report, I started to realize, I don't think we're not unique. This, was what, this is what's happening to all the aging services organizations around the, around the country. There was a time, about probably 10 years ago, when they had enough resources. It was government funding, but, but that's what they had. And then as you've had increasing demand and flat or decreasing budgets... Well, then what? In the state of Arizona, just to take that, uh, take our state, we've increased the amount of money we've put into uh, adult protective services for investigations when you have elder abuse. But we haven't put any money, we're, I don't remember how many years behind we are, at funding levels for services. So you're seeing increased number in amount of uh, reports of abuse. Because of course, yeah. because there are no services. Yeah, if you sense. put money yeah. into services, yeah. you're going to see a decline in the amount of reports of abuse. But we haven't gotten anywhere on that, you know, because we we have we only have so much funding, and we're just moving the pendulum back and forth. We're not really coming up with a, with a holistic uh, uh, system. So I think for organizations like FSL and aging services organizations, we're going to have to become more uh, philanthropic. You know, I mentioned there. There's only, what, 6% of nonprofits are really agent service organizations around the country. Well, when you look at philanthropy, and, and, and you're, you're both philanthropists, I know you're very involved in the community, look at that baby boomer generation. They've built most of the things in this country, right? I mean, your, your biggest donor supporters, I forget what the number is, 65 70% of all philanthropy is coming from people over the age of 55. It's a huge number. Mm-hmm. So all your children's issues, all your animal causes, all your education, everything, that's the philanthropic generation, or the most philanthropic generation we've seen. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to 
this year millennial generation it's the target. But they're you know the boomers are still on top. Um, I think we're going to have to see a shift and more of an interest of that generation taking care of their own. Mm-hmm. You know, to almost start to look at you know we've we've done a lot of you know we've done things for kids mm-hmm. we've done things now we need to do things for my generation. And that's a big shift, and I don't think we've figured that out yet. I need to figure out that. I need we, we need to figure out how to communicate with that group. Um, or you look at uh, they say not millennial. The group, what is this generation Z? Z will be the the largest turnover of wealth in history. So all of those people who are super rich are going to give it to their kids, and so maybe it's their issue now. So look at what happened to your parents. This is where you should align your, align your dollars philanthropically because yeah. they will they, you will have the now. 25 year olds who are going to come into a bunch of money in the next two years. Yeah. Dude, you just passed the buck to the younger generation from yourself. Yes. So. Won't be my parents. <laughs> Not sure if I understood what, what just happened there. <laughs> but that's, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a huge mm-hmm. issue. I don't, we're going to have to look at different ways to, to fund these services. You mentioned huge numbers. Um, and you, you have organizations that don't have a history or experience uh, being philanthropists, um, being philanthropic organizations. And um, the cause is not as attractive as kids and puppies. You know, I don't think ever will be. Right. I've had those, I, I've run organizations like that. It's, I, I don't want, nothing's easy in the nonprofit community, but it is easier than trying to help people understand uh, disabilities seniors, mm-hmm. aging, elderly, whatever term you want to use, more challenging. And then when you start to talk about housing, you know, how much can you do for small donations? I mean, we were meeting with a foundation recently and they, they were like, we want to get more involved in housing. They understand the impact of healthy housing has on somebody's physical health. They get that link. But to build a community, you're talking multi-millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. They could do it and then they're not helping anyone else on any other cause for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. So they they were like, "Wow, okay, we have to figure out what role we can play, but we're not big enough to help solve this issue." But again, I don't think we can just look at it as one person has to solve it. We have to start to piece together things. So I think we planted some good uh, seeds with them to understand the issue, but I don't know that we solved it. So from a um from a public policy standpoint, what's it looking like from government funding? Do you feel like that it will come back, or do you feel like this will be a priority in any administration, or how, how do you push My, that up? The, the, the best, I think, advocate we have is um, AARP is a really big, strong organization. When you, even recently, when you've seen the new, the new healthcare proposals come out, AARP came out strong and quickly. Uh, in opposition to it because if you're going to force states to make a decision of funding services for kids or the elderly they know which way that's going to go and they've got the most members of any organization and they're a pretty strong block so I think there I, I, there are other organizations but they're one that I would I would say does a really good job of trying to, to advocate for that I don't know if it's going to change it's, 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 it is difficult um, my thought is, you know, George mentioned this, these huge numbers and doubling. It seems like our tendency as a country is to wait till, you know, two minutes to midnight when it's a really, really big crisis and then we will do something about it as opposed to proactively doing something right. about it. Social Security we've talked about, you know, there's, there's numerous proposals on how to fix that. Nobody has the, the intestinal fortitude to do anything about it. You know, George and I's kids are young. If you tell them the retirement age is 70 now, they don't know any different. They're right. not in the workforce. They don't understand. And they're probably going to live to over 100 easily. I'll talk to my son about that later tonight. <laughs> He's five months old, so you probably you might get it. it. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to work until you're 85 years old, son. Um, so only 6% of charities are focused on this, but housing was a huge issue so at least sort of indirectly it's part of this is going to be addressed 
Yes, I, I mean, housing is something that is being done, but it, we can't build enough. But I don't know if we can ever, right. you know, money not being an object, I don't know if we can ever build enough. But if the funding comes back, there are some proposals that we're, we're monitoring that are that are working their way through um, to to expand uh, the pool of resources for the, the low-income housing tax credit. We're paying attention to that. We'll see if there's an appetite for that. But... Um, I think there is an awareness that we have a affordable housing crisis, mm -hmm. um, but what do we actually do with that is, is a different issue. So I, I think we are, I think we're monitoring that just to kind of see what, what happens with it. But can we ever, you know, truly build enough? My contention would be that, again, that's more cost effective than nursing homes, seniors, you know, uh, skilled nursing facilities, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The longer you can help somebody live in the lowest level of care is more cost effective to the community. Right. If they live in their own house or apartment with some services coming into their house, that's cheaper than a hospital stay. No kidding. That's cheaper than the skilled nursing facility. Um, when I've talked to some, some colleagues in that industry, what they're seeing is, you know, they're, they're seeing this play out. People who used to come and move in and live there for decades are now, they come in later, so they come in older, more frail, and sicker. And they don't stay as long because and they they have higher needs in the shorter time that they're there, so they're, they're, those systems are having to kind of relook at their their models too. So I think there's a lot of issues there. And then with like just take the housing issue. So a piece of that, a piece of the affordable housing issue that we've now uh, we've always been involved with it, but we're doing more with it is we're we've taken on an initiative recently to integrate food pantries into every one of our affordable housing communities. Mm -hmm. So we have 800 plus units of affordable housing around the state of Arizona. Uh, some of those rural communities, there's no food bank. There's nothing right. that's mm -hmm. really close. If there's something close, we're not gonna we're not gonna recreate that. We'll partner with somebody. But I was talking to a resident recently who's at one of our properties. When he gets done paying his rent and his health care and his utilities and, and um, uh, or you know those basic needs, he has twenty dollars a week for food. That doesn't go really far. No, it doesn't. I mean <clears throat> Certainly doesn't. You get twenty things off the dollar menu. Doesn't result in nutritious, op nutritious options. Certainly, You're certainly not going to have that. So, just by integrating the the food pantries on campus, on site, to just be able to accentuate what they're getting with non perishables, fresh fruits, vegetables. You know, people are going to eat healthier. We build really healthy properties, so we don't have the, you know, the VOCs from the paint and the off gassing from glues and laminates. So. We, we see people being healthier because of the environment, and then if we can if we can tackle some of that food, we can try to contribute to bending that that cost curve. Mm -hmm. So that integration of, of health and homes, I think, is just integral to what we do, and I think a lot of people are starting to see that. that connection. Are you seeing a lot of so the Atlantic did a really good article on uh, multi generational housing, and that there are it's more and more common now to see three generations in a home. Yes. Are you seeing more of that now? We are definitely seeing more of that, but I think even like Lennar, the home builder, has tried to you know build this home within a home, and and it has slow start. I don't you know it makes sense to have you know this this house that has sort of a, um, a its own kitchen, its own master bathroom, uh, you know that they, that's the model they try to get it in front of. And I don't know that they're selling as well as they thought. Hmm. Um, so it's interesting, you know. But I think uh, in talking to home builders, they are changing the way that they're building homes. For us, we're building. Uh, we're, we're doing a project in South Phoenix, where we're building 121 affordable, energy efficient homes down around Broadway and 24th Street. And some of the options that the the modifications you can make. So they're they're not custom, but there's options you can pick. And some of those are the multi-generational because there's little things you could do. So if you know that's going to be an issue mm -hmm. that, you know, mom or dad's going to live with you in the future, design the bathroom, design the kitchen in a way that they're going to be able to move into that because what you see a lot of times are those, those trips and falls, mm -hmm. you know, that the physical environment, the impact that that can play on somebody's health. You know, somebody falls and breaks a hip, breaks, breaks a bone, their, their health goes down really rapidly. Right. When that injury happens, right. <clears throat> so the design is is really interesting. We have an architect on staff, and I mean, you know, we we can we just live and breathe universal design to start to think of those things, 
you know, when it's, it's impacted me when, you know, my wife and I were looking for a home and I was like, if this is going to be our last home, we have to get a one story. We can't get stairs. Can we get older? We'll do stairs. And we bought a two story because my wife bought a two story. So, uh, I was like, this is not our last house then. She's like, why? Like, because we bought stairs and eventually There's we're not going to be able to do that. that. There's a big old step going into our shower. It's a trip and fall. Has. So you start to see the world differently when, when your life's been impacted by aging. You know, so uh, these are all things we have to think about. I think builders are starting to uh, make those available. But why don't we just make things universal design on everything? Right. And then people will be able to age and adjust. Yeah. adjust. Yeah. So yeah. if you're um, a listener and you're parents are in their 60s or 70s, what are some of the things that I should be doing, for instance, to be prepping for when that comes in the next 10 or 15 years? Yeah, you want, I mean, I think a lot of it is you want to start having the conversations before the triggering event when something has to be decided. You need to start, it, it, it's not a, a, a point in time discussion, it has to happen over time. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if there's listeners, give us a call. You know, the main office number is 602-285-1800. Ask to talk to one of the social workers, one of the volunteers. They'll be able to help people navigate some of that. Um, I know when I've uh, referred uh, people that I know, and I, I, I talk to them, and they're like, the social worker is so helpful. I'm glad I make this call. I should have did it five years ago. You know, so I think that's a thing to just uh, to, to become involved. Um, we, we blog pretty consistently, so we're constantly talking about caregiving and, and home care issues. So... If, if people want to sign up for our, our e-news or follow our blog, follow, follow us on social media, all those things, we're, we're, we're putting those tips and tricks out there for people to be, to be thinking about those. But I think when you're talking to your, you know, your own loved one, you got to start having the conversation, try to figure out what is the plan. And I think for a lot of people, what they'll find out when they have the conversation is the parent doesn't want to be a burden on the kids. So it's just navigating that. And... What we do a lot of times is is um, is is get a professional involved to kind of be that impartial mm-hmm. third party, to to you know play that role. Is there because when you start changing, you know you go parent to child and now you're trying to flip the script. Mm-hmm. You know not everyone's okay with that. Mm-hmm. You know it went pretty good with my mom when my my wife has started to have those conversations with my mother in law. She ain't moving. She's not doing anything. Okay, well. You know, she's still young. She's still, you know, healthy. But what happens in five years? What happens right. in ten years? Twenty? You know, it, it. No one is. You know, there's an old, there's an old quote: "Father time is undefeated." You know, right. there's a reason that quote exists. So I think that's part of it. Um, start to have those conversations. Start gather. You know, getting information, getting things. There's a financial role. You know, there are there are financial planners who specifically look at aging issues. There's there's things that you can plan for for somebody's uh, assets to, to try to plan that. I'm not an expert in that area. We know a lot of people we can refer to. So when somebody calls us those things, we'll, we'll pass them along. Does like a checklist or something exist of like the 10 questions I should talk about with my parents? Like just something to navigate of like, what do you, I have no idea if they have long-term care. I just have no idea. So is yeah. there a way to find that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 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 We could get that, uh, get that over to you and make it available. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Connected to, yeah. <clears throat> For uh, as large an issue as this is, it just doesn't seem like enough people are talking about it, and I'm sure that that's a frustrating thing for you, like we were talking about earlier. Kids and puppies are uh, a little bit more, (laughs) I guess, sexier. Um, But this is such a huge issue, and it's irritated and frustrating to me to do research on what the biggest trending social issues on Twitter were from 14 to 15, 16, and 17. And all of it's important, but, I mean... I don't think it's necessarily as important as this looming crisis that, uh, that, that, that we have. It is. It, it's it's going to be a challenge. We're all going to be facing it. The way I look at it is, you know, when you take the, um, you know, your disease charities, whatever it might be, cancer, et cetera. Um, our issue, if you will, is aging. And it affects everyone. You will you know, get old. <laughs> you will. Yeah. You will. There's this great, oh, let me see if I can find it. There's a great uh, uh quote from uh, Rosalind Carter, that there's only four kinds of people in the world. Those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be a caregiver, and those who will need a caregiver. Aging will affect you and affect your life. And I think, uh, you know, you can learn a lot more 
about the issue, um, if you visit our website, which is fsl.org, Foundation for Senior Living.org, um, there's a lot of information, there's services on there, and a lot of times it just starts with that phone call. And if it's not something we can do, we'll try to connect the person to the right services. Unfortunately, sometimes there is a gap in our community and there's nothing that can be done, mm -hmm. but at least the person's not spending a lot of time trying to find a resource that, right. that doesn't, doesn't exist. Right. So we can help with that navigation and I think that's a role we play in the community and we're, we're happy to do it. Hugely important one. Um, as our time is, is wrapping up, I, it's, it, this is one of those things where you, you talk about numbers that are so big, it's to a degree it's nameless and it's faceless. Loneliness is also a huge issue with senior citizens. 28% uh, of all folks over 65 live alone. 46% of women that are over 65 live alone. Um, and once they're over the age of 75, the numbers of women that are living alone is, is, is very, very, very high. And there's a lot of bad things that happen. Um, people can have an accident. The, um, the onset or the incidence of dementia and Alzheimer's increases. There's lots of bad things. And that's something that every single one of us can address right in front of us. If it's our own folks that are living alone, make sure that you are keeping in close contact with them. Or if your neighbor is a senior citizen, reach out to them because they would really, really appreciate it. So We have volunteer opportunities on our, on our website. Again, fsl.org. Friendly callers, somebody to call that isolated, lonely oh, wow. person just to be able to connect with somebody. Um, somebody just check in, you know, with people. And then we have uh, the volunteers who just take those incoming calls. I mentioned like three calls a month. Somebody needs to triage all of those. Uh, sometimes they're easy things that the volunteer can, you know, with some training can provide. Other ones, they kind of get a sense of the issue and then, and then bring it up to one of the, the social workers or nurses and find out what's the resource and get back to the person. So there's opportunities like that. There's group volunteer opportunities. Sometimes the the you know the the person who's now you know maybe her husband kept up on the yard mm. and you know he's not around anymore or and the kids live too far away and she's getting fines from the city because of weeds and things mm. and she just can't keep up with anymore. It's an easy group volunteer project. It's a team builder, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So you know we have some great individual volunteer opportunities. We have some group volunteer opportunities. Um, again, just give us a call. Okay, awesome. Centauri, what have we forgotten to talk about today, sir? You answered all my questions. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Tom, what else can we get off, or what else would you like to get off your chest? Do you have an event coming up? We do. On uh, March 29th, we're actually having a breakfast fundraising event and then a lunch fundraising event at the Phoenix Country Club. Um, uh, an hour-long program. It's a free event. Uh, uh, there's table captains who then uh, bring people through uh, about a 45-minute program helping people understand who we are, what we do, all the good we're doing in the community. There's information again on our website, fsl.org. It's called Breakfast for All Ages, even though one of the events is a lunch. <laughs> nice. So there you go. Go to fsl.org, give them a call, and we'll list... Obviously, you probably will. I don't need to list fsl.org, but we'll, we'll have the, uh, the phone number on the website, um, or rather in the show notes. So, well, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show and tell a friend. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.